but the body doesn't quite work like that somehow and i think um we need to understand a lot more about the person behind the health issue and understand how we can actually make that person have an environment and a, and a world in which they can live more healthily Welcome everyone to 15 Minutes With. I am here with Nick Tyler. Nick, could you kindly introduce yourself, please? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Tyler. I'm the Chadwick Professor of Civil Engineering at UCL, but you shouldn't worry too much about that because I do many other things. And one of those is that I direct the Pearl Laboratory, which is for where we study um, person environment activity interrelations. Fantastic. I think one of the greatest things you ever said to us, uh, Nick, what you said in jest was that you prefer to be a professor of civilized engineering. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very rash. <laughs> Brilliant. So let, let's kick off with uh, question number one, which is more about uh, your experience professionally or what you've observed. So what's the best health focused project you've seen or worked on? Well, it's always difficult to choose. I think one I would, the one I would pick out for this is a project we did a few a few years ago called "Seeing What They See," um, and this was a project um, about people with dementia um, and an issue around people with dementia, which was wondering actually how we know what they see, so that we can figure out how do you design an environment to work with them much better, and of course with people with dementia, particularly advanced dementia, you realize that how do you know what somebody else sees is by asking them, um, if you go to the optometrist or whatever. And uh, by the time they've got into an advanced state of dementia, very often they have they've lost the ability to communicate. And so you can't ask them. And as a result, we have no idea what people with dementia could see. So this project was to try and explore what they could actually see. Um, and that meant finding people with dementia with a particular version of dementia where the vision effect was very late on in the onset. So therefore, they could still communicate when we could discuss um, uh, what they could see, but also we could do um, experiments with them with their help in um, in Pamela, in our, my previous laboratory. So we could actually begin to explore things. And I think that really transformed people's idea of um what it is that's going on that affects people's vision when they're having dementia quite apart from all of the other things that dementia is is affecting and i think it was quite spectacular some of the differences and and should cause huge pause for thought um if the medical profession but also for us as designers of spaces in which people with dementia might be so it's a very profound project what were the particular outcomes? Because obviously you're looking at an issue such as dementia to question things such as navigation, gait, but also you have talked about, maybe this isn't directly related, about the physiological impacts of walking on surfaces such as concrete. Was any of that factored into this type of research to understand what type of hard infrastructure we need to be thinking about in cities? Not into that project, um, but but uh, it, I mean, it would apply to that. We just started this one a little bit after that one so it's just the timing the way that projects are very isolated beings that's a whole other question about how we um, do and fund research um, 
actually around the world, but also but a lot in this country. But the other one, yes, the hard surfaces is really interesting. I mean, you're going to do about 200 million steps in a lifetime. And every time you put your foot on the concrete footway, you're sending a shockwave um, up your skeletal system. And that means that your skeleton has to be able to absorb all that. Uh, and we have evolved an, an amazing system to do that. But it, unfortunately, evolution is very slow. And our evolution has got us to being able to walk on grass on two legs rather than uh, walking on concrete on two legs. And so we're not, we're not really evolved for those shocks, the kind of shock that you get on concrete, but we are for the kind of shock you get on softer surface like grass. And so we've been looking at whether it's possible to make a different kind of surface that would actually benefit people so that by the time people become older and maybe having other problems such as balance um, issues or arthritis or just generally getting a bit stiff, um, which means that walking is a bit more painful and a bit more difficult, actually the softer surface would, first of all, um, hopefully would be reducing the impact on that so you'd have less damages to the cartridges uh, to the cartilage and the joints in the skeletal system and um, more strength in the ligaments and so on so that actually you are better positioned as an older person to be walking along and less likely to fall and more capable of responding to um, the, if a fall were about to occur you might be more likely to react and if you did actually fall it would come to you when you actually hit the ground so that that project is is really looking at a sort of um getting the environment to fit the way that we have involved amazing brilliant project thank you for explaining that nick so that might relate to kind of question two which is what code of policy or practice do you want to see changed and we're looking at something quite contemporary that you feel oh my this is the great opportunity we, that we can slightly nudge. We're going to see a more systemic improvement in how we're evaluating health. Uh -huh. Well, I could be quite uh, provocative here. Um, I think we kind of need to demedicalize health. Um, and what I mean by that is we tend to see health in terms of illnesses. And that means you have to define an illness and then you have to have an illness that has been defined in order that we know what the treatment is to the illness that we have defined. But the body doesn't quite work like that somehow. And I think um, we need to understand a lot more about the person behind the health issue and understand how we can actually make that person have an environment and a, and a world in which they can live more healthily. And that that is not necessarily defined by illness. So I and I look at um, a lot of issues in the world and i suppose predominantly in this in for this issue um we're talking about the non-communicable diseases so the respiratory disease um the diseases like um uh, respiratory illness um, the issues around mental health and all of these sorts of issues which are non-communicable diseases there's cardiovascular diabetes all of these things and how much of those are actually caused by the environment or if not caused by are exacerbated by or are stimulated by so what we're actually seeing is a physiological reaction to some state that the environment has set up so you could take um, examples of things like um, say 
some forms some some people's depression for example might be caused by the kind of stresses they have in either very crowded spaces or in spaces which are too hot or too cold or um, they feel very cramped or very forced in the way that they have to do this all adds to um, stress the stress in some people might turn into um, a more extreme form which becomes a mental illness then they hit the health system the health system prescribes them a remedy for the symptom being the 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 mental health problem rather than actually dealing with the problem which was actually how we had designed the environment in the first place so if i had to go about codes of policy and practice it would be actually let's start looking at how the environment interacts with people and vice versa to see how that interaction could be restrained from delivering the kind of um, impacts on the person and the body that result in the body act reacting physiologically um, in a way that causes distress to the person does that make any sense at all? Of course, because in no meaningful or direct way you have kind of explained the research ethos and methodology of Centric Lab in the first place. <laughs> and it, it could be that that's because we've um, you've been such a, a supporting advisor over the years, uh, but also an awareness of where neuroscience in particular is going to have its impact. And there was a great line that you gave us. I think I'm going to go back to 2018. And I think we were interviewing you with regards to the Neuroscience for Cities playbook. And one of the things you said was that neuroscience isn't about space. It's about time. It's the ability to look at people through a sustained period of time and have a measurement tool to understand that exposure. And it was it was a light bulb moment, certainly for us in helping or certainly for me, I should say, in focusing a lot of what we're looking at. So. Uh, Great answer. Obviously, we would say that because it's very close to what we do at Centric. So thank you for that. So let's let's move into the third question, which is we're now moving into uh, you sharing more about your network and how because we're always influenced by uh, people around us. And I think one of the beautiful things about a product such as Twitter is the exposure to people you never knew existed. So. I kind of want to ask the question, who are the three people you admire in your professional peer network that other people should either read about or go follow on social media or buy their book, for example? Who are three people that you find um, just inspiring from your relatively close professional peer network that other people should check out? OK. Um, this is always difficult because uh, the network is inevitably huge. And, and I think one of the great things about about what I think about being in research, at least, is it's it's a it's a very much a listening game, and um, and I learn so much from everybody, and I think that's a that's a, so I suppose if I could cheat and have an extra one, I would say it's everybody, and then from everybody, um, I've sort of figured out three um, people that are that I think are are influential to me in very different kinds of ways. Um, and it is very difficult to cut it to cut it down to three. I think one I would say is um, Hugo Spears, who you will know. Um, and Hugo, I think, uh, is one of those people I always learn so much from Hugo. And and what he's extremely good at, he's very open to different takes on things. 
and then and thinking through what does that actually mean how might what what my knowledge what his knowledge how does how does that actually impinge on the way that we would think about this this um, new way of thinking about something or this different way of thinking about something rather than just trying to dismiss it first so so hugo i find is a very inspirational um, colleague, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with him and be great to work with him more, but actually somebody who really grasps what we're trying to do and, and puts that really fundamental knowledge of neuroscience in, in there, and that is so useful for us. So Hugo would be one. Um, another one uh, would be somebody called Anne Fry. Anne Fry was for a long time um, in the department well, the various named versions of what is now the Department for Transport. And she basically single-handedly in the 1980s set up um, what I think at that time was the mobility unit. Um, then it's had various kinds of names. And what that really did was introduce uh, the idea that transport should be open to everybody irrespective of their capabilities. And, and how do you do that sitting in the middle of government um, how do you make sure that government does that? And, and I think I think it's fair to say she she no doubt has upset a lot of people in the course of doing that. Um, but I think Anne is a really good example of somebody who grasped an issue with both hands and used her entire energy to to get it out of a completely zero, even possibly negative consideration, onto very top flight. Um, level of the agenda. That's not to say all the problems have been solved, and she is still working um, in the field very actively in promoting that. So I would say Anne Fry is somebody who I think I look at as someone who just doesn't give up and just keeps pushing, keeps pushing the boundaries forward. And I think that's always a good good thing to see. Um, and the third one um, is is somebody. Uh, called uh, Makoto Okado, and he's in Japan, and from J Japan. He is the sort of research planning uh, manager for Fujitsu. But that's actually not why he would be on my list, and I think he wouldn't think that would be any reason to be on anybody's list. Um, what he is uh, brilliant at is, is a completely sideways slant on dementia. And um, he has transformed ways of thinking about dementia um, in Japan, um, mostly through um, non-governmental organizations, because the governmental one is quite stiff. But, um, but the idea of saying to somebody who's just been diagnosed with dementia, so what can you do? Let's, let's work with what you can do, and let's enable you to do what you can do, rather than saying, Ah, now you have dementia, so you won't be able to do this and this, and that's going to change, and that's going to get really terrible, and this is going to be really awful, and we have to constrain you, we have to lock you in because you might go wandering, and we have to do all these things. Makoto takes completely the opposite view. He starts off with what people can do and then enables them to do that at whatever level that they can. And, the, and that, what that has done is it's transformed uh, what we would call um, care homes. They don't call them that in, in Japan. Um, they call them group homes. Um, the whole social life of people with dementia, and indeed the working life of people with dementia, um, being able to earn their own living, 
doing things with the self-respect that comes with the achievements from doing that. Um, and it means that you have a completely different sense of what dementia means there than you would do if you looked in a more normal uh, kind of approach to dementia. So I think somebody who completely out of his field has transformed a concept of, um, of uh, a condition that has really affected um, society, particularly aging societies in Japan, of course, is a good example of that, um, very severely, and just, again, grabbed it with both hands, just changed it and said, this is wrong, let's look at it in a more in a better way and let's start from there and what do you find when you do that inspiring that's brilliant thank you nick uh hugo uh, who's the first person you brought up yes uh, hugo for us was um instrumental we were fortunate enough to work with him for six months uh, to help establish centric lab and his constructive uh knowledges that helps us understand uh, how we as an independent organization would broach that was, uh, as I say, the word fundamental. I think one of the great things about Hugo, and I will bring up a line uh, that he said that, and this is what he said to me in passing, so it's not a full you know, quote as such, but he said that being a neuroscientist isn't always about strapping people up to headsets and putting them <laughs> in machines. It's about, it's about knowing what type of questions to ask. And that, type of thinking means that Hugo doesn't want to jump in and spend 2000 pounds uh, per person to put them in an MRI just to see what the brain looks. And uh, he, I think it is one of the most, if not the most successful uh, scientific data gathering project to date, which is a project called Sea Hero Quest, mm. which, was, which has been funded uh, through Deutsche Telekom to Alzheimer's UK to create a smartphone game that Hugo and another neuroscientist, uh, from their knowledge about navigation, which is Hugo's specialism in, uh, and uh, spatial cognition and navigation, designed a series of maps that would then be animated and turned into a game where you were a boat and you had to memorize a map and go to this journey. And I think they had about 5 million downloads and engagements from people all across the world, which is one of the biggest data gathering projects, helping understand uh, navigation traits and patterns from different people, different demographics, etc. And again, it, a, the, a furthering in neuroscience wasn't about EEG and reading brainwave data. It was about understanding what type of questions. I think Hugo is a very inspiring person to check out. And uh, to finish the kind of the conversation on inspiration, uh, I'm sure you draw a lot of inspiration and hope from many places, Nick, but <laughs> where do you find the hope in what you do that inspires you to keep pushing the boundaries? Where do you find that hope when you wake up in the morning and see it or read about it and, or believe there's a speech or a process or a program or people? Where do you keep finding that hope to, to go, yeah, today I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and push against the grain? That's a very difficult question because um, for me, it's such a continual process. I think, I think what I'm, I'm seeing is... It's a slightly odd answer to that, I think. Um, to me, it's about, it's all about performance. And when I mean, what I mean by performance isn't, you know, how many widgets do you make in an hour? It's not that kind of performance, but it's about how one, one performs in life. And um, I'm always very grateful that, that my, my sort of founding um, education, I suppose, uh was in music so i spent about 10 years of my life as a professional musician and and 
I look back at it because it's a long time ago now, and I look back at that and I think how fortunate I was to be educated in a world in which you performed. Because performance is about self-reliance. It's about realizing when you are the most important person in the room and when you are the least important person in the room and how you put all that together in order to create something which is outside of everybody. And then tomorrow, you do it all again. Every time, every time is the first time, every, everyone is an original. And that, I think, is the thing that keeps me uh, always looking for the new, is always looking for uh, the, the new way of interpreting, the new way of looking at something, uh, even if it is something very um, conventional, traditional, something that I did yesterday. What's the new way of thinking about that? Because that sense, that hunger for the new way of interpreting something that might yield a, an insight that you didn't have yesterday and you wouldn't have had yesterday because you haven't had the intervening 24 hours of lived experience that have built on that. And that to me is, is the engine that takes me forward, is that sense of incessant, um, live, creative, artistic performance. Brilliant. I um, have always been inspired by Kandinsky and his relationship to music. You know, he says mm. that music is the ultimate teacher. But even though he made uh, physical work, he always felt that music, because it was part of the, it wasn't part of the corporate reality. It wasn't something that existed in a physical product. It existed in the imagination, in the mind, in the interpretation that is always unique, that it was the greatest form of creativity and spirituality coming together. So uh, performance very much related to that for sure. So Nick, thank you very much for your time in coming on. Um, is there any, any other business, anything else you'd like to shout out to listeners about something maybe you're working on, would you like people to pay attention to, or whether it's just your Twitter account, if people want to follow what you're up to? Well, you can always find me at, at Nick Tyler 4. Um, I think what I would, the one thing I would say is at some point, come and have a look at Pearl. Um, very welcome. So pearl.place will give you um, a bit of an insight into it. And we also have a website at ucl.ac.uk slash Pearl. And you'll see kind of adventurous places where we try to do the kind of things we've been talking about. Brilliant. Nick, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for asking. Fifteen minutes with has been made possible by generous supporters and donators to Centric Lab via our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Centric Lab, as well as our Urban Health Council sponsors, the National Lottery Community Fund. If you're interested in more information about this, please visit urbanhealthcouncil.com. Thanks.